0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Perspective on coping with fear and loneliness from a woman who has fought cancer for years. I can tell you this for sure
1: that you can choose your attitude even though you can't choose your circumstances.
0: Then, nearly a third of people whose deaths are related to COVID-19 in Colorado were residents of elder care facilities, what we know about situations inside nursing homes. Then, an oral history project documenting pandemic stories and experiences as they happen to preserve them for future generations. As far as the town of Durango, this poor town, it really thrives on the tourist industry. I really do worry about how this little town is going to make it through. Plus, how will the pandemic affect the state budget? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Let's start with something that may be hard to find these days. Optimism, and it comes from Carissa Rund of Inglewood. I can tell you this for sure, that you can choose your attitude, even
1: though you can't choose your circumstances. You can choose hope. You can choose happiness. You can choose to see the good. You can choose to let go. And you can choose peace.
0: Rund is 35, and that piece is hard won. She lost her mother at a young age, she survived the Columbine shootings, she was widowed, and she's been fighting colon cancer for more than four years. I'm in this battle, and there's a lot riding
1: on what might happen.
0: That's Rund from her video blog, Fearless. For the last several weeks, she's been posting tips and philosophy for getting through in the age of coronavirus. Welcome, Carissa. Thank you. Your blog is called Fearless. Are you fearless at this time?
1: (laughs) I don't think anybody is. I would love to be. I mean, that's part of what... I'm striving for every day is just to let go of worry and anxiety and, and find hope and peace. And I think for all of us, that's a continual struggle right now. But I do think that we can make it better for ourselves if we just kind of focus on it and try not to go to those dark places.
0: And I think like you say, we are all living with some degree of anxiety right now. After dealing with this for longer than most people, how do you cope with fear? I think it's important to remember that fear is the deeper
1: feeling underneath anxiety. So when we feel anxious, there's a deeper fear underneath that. And for a lot of us, our deepest fear is the fear of death. So I actually believe through all that I've been through that the best thing that we can do when we feel anxious or we feel afraid is to really think about those deep questions that are, are at the heart of of our anxiety, which is about where do we come from, why are we here, and where are we going, and how does God factor into all of that?
0: Hmm. So not shying away from big questions. What about routines? Do you set up routines to help add to normalcy? I have set up a lot of routines.
1: Through cancer, I've had many times where I've had to be at home when I didn't want to be, and frankly, where my body still needed time to rest and my mind was ready to go. But your body wins, right? So I end up on the couch for weeks, months with chemo or recovering from surgery. And I noticed that when I had a routine, when I developed a schedule, I did a lot better. My head was in a lot better place. And that's the kind of thing that I want to share with people as they're forced to be at home right now.
0: And it strikes me that those routines are probably different than the ones you might want to set up. Because like you said, your body wins. So you're having to set up these alternate routines. What might those be like?
1: Yeah, and I think our our natural instinct, and it's okay for a few days, there, there, was a lot of shock and I think there still might be. And so it makes sense that we would need some time to sort of catch up and figure out what it is that we need to do. And once we get to that point, I think it's really important to do things like change your clothes, have a schedule, make a list of things that bring you joy, three good things so that you can keep your focus on what you can be grateful for on the good.
0: And part of this is having gratitude. You tell the story of a friend whose child was seriously ill. What did they focus on? Yes, that's my friend, Joe, And
1: her little girl was born with a congenital heart defect. And so it's given them this perspective that I think is incredible, which is Like, let's not focus on what's out of our control. Let's not focus on what could happen. Let's really just appreciate what we have and what she is right now. And they talk about how one day they couldn't think of anything to be grateful for other than that things hadn't gotten worse. And they decided that that was okay because her and I both believe that joy and pain can coexist. And we've both seen that in our lives. Sometimes we feel both of those strong emotions in the same moments.
0: Mm. And we're all at a physical distance from our friends right now, and we can't just go to the office, go to dinner. You talk about the need for what you call a battle buddy, and that's more than a casual friend. What does that battle buddy do?
1: Yeah, phone a friend. I think this is really, really
0: important. And
1: when I, talked about battle buddies in my fearless vlog, I was talking specifically about my friend, Alicia. So Alicia and I met in a very sweet, that was a circumstance neither of us wanted to be in. I was getting chemo at the infusion center and she was getting a different kind of infusion that keeps her alive. We just hit it off immediately. We just really learned to rely on each other. And so for me, she's somebody that I can tell the truth to no matter what and confess my fears and I think the big difference with like a battle buddy is they help you fight the battle. They don't just say, that's too bad, I'm really sorry. She says, hey, what can we do about this? How can I pray for you? What what can we do to make this better? What do you think is the next step? She points me back to hope.
0: And I think that's what we need.
1: We all need in somebody.
0: I really like that. You actually say in one video that cancer has brought you a ton of blessings. How is that?
1: I think it's a blessing to realize your mortality. And I know that's really hard because I know that's what a lot of people are struggling with, but it gives you a lot of gifts, all of which I would give back, by the way, because it's painful. So I'm not going to tell you that it, it's been worth it and I would do it all over again. It's it's an amazing amount of physical pain that I've been through and a lot of suffering And I don't know if I'm going to make it. I have an 8% chance of survival through cancer. But because it's happened and because it is happening, I want to be able to find the good in every situation that I'm in. And in this situation, it's good that I'm able to really evaluate my life. And I think people have this opportunity right now. Are you living for purpose? I believe that the best way we can live, the best thing we can do with our lives is to give it to other people to serve other people. So I think it's a really good time to anchor yourself
0: in that. I also wonder, as someone who's dealt with isolation and illness for years now, what is it like for you watching so many people wrestle with this for the first time?
1: Oh, I feel so much empathy for people who are wrestling with this. It's really hard. I think all of us have realized on a deeper level that we were made for connection and we weren't made to be alone. So my hope is that when we all come out of this, we'll have a greater sense of our interconnectedness. We'll develop even stronger relationships with each other. We'll see even more value in other people. And I just want to encourage people who are grieving or alone or isolated that it will get better.
0: Carissa, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thanks for having me, Avery. Carissa Rund lives in Inglewood. Her video blog, Fearless, is on Instagram, at Carissa Rund. When we come back, preserving the history of the pandemic as it happens. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give, those essential donations mean CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And that CPR Classical and Indy 1023 can continue to fill your home with the music
3: you love. If you are in a position to donate, it's easy to start making a difference
2: at CPR.org.
0: We are living in historic times, a global pandemic, stay-at-home orders, millions suddenly unemployed. History Colorado wants to capture it as it happens, so future generations can understand what it was like. They're collecting stories from everyday people. This one is a phone message left by a Durango woman. As far as the town of Durango, though, this poor town, it really thrives on the tourists industry. And two years ago, it was the 416 fire out here, which really shut things down. And now with COVID, the train is not running. The restaurants aren't open. People aren't here visiting. And this town really depends on those visitors. People are really following the, the social distancing restrictions. And, um, I really do worry about how this little town is, is going to make it through. Jason Hansen is the chief creative officer at History Colorado. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Oh, thank you so much, Avery. In that message, you can feel how personal this is, her concern for Durango. I guess that's the beauty of an oral history. Can you describe what you're trying to capture with this project? Yeah,
4: happy to. We knew when we saw COVID coming our way that as a community-oriented education organization, we had a lot to offer and I think like a lot of folks out there, we transformed a lot of what we were doing to share it digitally with people. But we also knew that we had to document this moment, that it was really our mission to do so. It's it's history in the making. And so we launched a wide-ranging project to collect Coloradans' experiences during this pandemic. We set up a lot of ways for people to share their story. They can fill out a survey which is available in English and Spanish. They can keep a journal or or write reflections on their experiences. They can share photos or videos like howling videos. They can share physical objects that embody the story, and they can call and leave a message like the one that, that we just heard. And if they want, we'll even call them back. But what we're trying to do here is really get a sort of comprehensive understanding of the experience of Coloradans around the state in all walks of life as we're all, as as people are saying, we're in this together. We have the tools now in a way that people have never had before, historians have never had before, to really try and, and capture that big quilt of experience. And, and that's what we're doing with this project.
0: And it strikes me, like you said, there are all these ways to collect stories this pandemic is different from past plagues because technology is widely available. How will that impact what you record for posterity? You know, I think,
4: I don't know how it was for you, but when it became clear that COVID was coming for us in Colorado, the, the first thing that I did, and I think the first thing that, that many of us did, was to look for models in the past that would give us insight into what our present or immediate future might hold. And for a lot of us, that was the 1918 flu. and at History Colorado, we really dove into that and talked to our, our friends who are experts in the flu. And in so many ways, our understanding of that event and really of much of history has been shaped by those who had access to a microphone or could get their views published. And today we really have the tools to ensure that so many other voices shape the story of how we put this pandemic into the past. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. The, the result is going to be a much more informed understanding of, of what life was like for all of us and why we made the decisions we did. And I really think it's it's an act of kindness and, and generosity that we can do right now for future generations so that when they find themselves faced with another situation sometime in the future, that they are looking back for models from the past they can look back and really understand why we did the things we did and what it was like for us. And hopefully take comfort in that and gain insight from it. That's going to help them.
0: Now, you're not asking data questions like how many masks are available in your town. You are asking about daily life, things like how are you navigating work and family needs? What will you remember about this moment? Why are you asking these sorts of questions?
4: That's right. Well, the, the questions about how many masks, those are really important. And those are being documented. So I don't want to downplay the importance of those questions. But the questions we're asking are the questions that, as a historian, I often want to know about when I look into past events, and they're they're much harder to find answers to. And so we really want to give people that, that opportunity to share their story, um, because I think we all have an important story to tell this, uh, to understand what the coronavirus pandemic means for us is going to be everybody's story. And so it's it's going to be so much more than just the statistics. In fact, I think most of us, you know, when when we want to understand something, statistics are a really useful starting spot. But we seek out deeper understanding uh, those human stories, those human narratives that connect us and really help us gain insight into what this is going to be like for us as well.
0: And if I understand you correctly, it sounds like maybe oral histories aren't the best place to capture those statistics.
4: Oral histories can be great. If you're taking an oral history from a statistician or a public health official, that might be uh, the right place to capture those statistics. But uh, I think we would not want to limit ourselves to the oral histories that can just give us those statistics. Uh, what we're looking for is really that that full spectrum of people's experiences. And so, the you know the oral histories that uh, we conduct um, that's part of that. If you want to ask us to call you back, we will happily call you back and and conduct an oral history or or just listen to your story. But the oral histories that that we conduct you know are going to have Lots of texture and hopefully be augmented by people's own video diaries, for instance, or their own essays or journals or uh, their short answers to some of the questions that we are asking online. And when we add it all up together, it's going to be something that we've, we've really never had in the past. This, this more comprehensive understanding of really how we shared this experience
0: Now, let's get to some of these oral histories that you've already received. Um, You're hearing what parenting is like. A man in Denver called in to say he's using his time at home to teach his daughters how to ride a bike. On the other hand, here's a woman who is at a loss for how to juggle working from home and keeping her kids engaged in offline activities.
5: I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and in our normal life, we don't really spend a lot of time at our house. My husband and I go to work every day, sometimes into the night. My son goes to elementary school. My daughter goes to preschool. After school and on weekends, they have sports and music lessons. We go to birthday parties and church. We eat at restaurants and play on playgrounds. We take trips and visit friends. Now that we've been told to stay in our house for weeks on end, I'd love to say my children are discovering all kinds of wonderful things that we have here and spending lots of time together. But mostly they sit watching streaming videos or playing games on their iPads. From social media, it seems like all of my friends are creative parents doing amazing activities with their kids, and it's not like I haven't tried anything, but I'm supposed to be working from home at the same time, and so is my husband, and mostly it's just easier to let them stare at those screens.
0: This is so honest. It paints a picture of family life before and during coronavirus. Do you feel like people are telling like it is and not putting a rosy face on things?
4: Yeah, I've been, I don't want to say surprised, but... It's been really affirming to hear how honest people are being. And I think it's just uh, we all sense that we are living through something momentous right now. And we're all really aware that this could have big and sometimes permanent ramifications for how we live our lives. And people, I think, have been just incredibly honest, sometimes heartbreakingly honest. And it's something that I just want to thank folks for doing
0: Are there people that you haven't heard from yet that you want to make sure that you reach different types of experiences that you're hoping people will share?
4: You know, I wouldn't put a checklist out there, but I want to hear from really everybody. I mean, I want to hear from the parents who are trying hard to make it work. I want to hear from people in Four Corners who are dependent on tourism. I want to hear from doctors and first responders and grocery store workers. I want to hear from people on our tribal reservations in Colorado, I want to hear from folks in high country communities that are trying to grapple with really some of the the most um, dire impacts so far. I I really I just want to hear from everybody. The goal here is that collectively from all of our individual stories, our Colorado story will emerge.
0: Everybody has a piece of this quilt. A hallmark of this time is that schools are closed. Students and teachers, they've been thrust into this experiment and online learning and remote learning. Let's hear from a high school teacher.
2: When COVID closed my school, we were all of the impression that we were going on an extended spring break. Three weeks off, and then we'd find ourselves back together again. Unfortunately, this disease had other plans for us. All of the... Exams my students were intending to take for their international baccalaureate program have been canceled. Their opportunities to earn college credit for the work that they've done over the past few years are now in total jeopardy. Their high school graduations have been canceled. There will be no prom this year. Now as I reach out to my students individually, I continually hear the same thing from these adolescents. Why can't we meet in class again? To hear 17, 16-year-olds beg to come to school is a unique experience for me, even as a 20-year educator. And it's very sad. And as someone who works directly with students, it is upsetting to see um, their reaction. And the social, emotional uh, turmoil that this has thrown into their lives.
0: He's identified turmoil in his students. It makes me wonder how they will be affected in the long term. As a historian, will you be watching for change in education or even a generation after this massive disruption?
4: Yeah, I think uh, anytime we have such a a large, widespread communal event historians were always watching for how that may reverberate over time across generations. And that message was just heartbreaking to hear in in so many ways. But it made me really feel not just for the teachers, which it did, but also all these students who are missing their graduations. You know, that's such a rite of passage in American life. And, you know, I think uh, not to be too academic about it, but we'll all be... Looking for, are there impacts from that? You know, every, every generation is shaped by some powerful experiences. And I think the generation that is in school now is being shaped by this in ways that we can't recognize right now. We can't anticipate. Uh, unfortunately, being a historian doesn't come with a crystal ball. But I think we're, we're going to be looking for it, certainly, and how this impacts society in ways large and small. Over coming decades, really.
0: I want to end with a message from Pueblo West, a remote area. This is a woman who works in fast food and has kept her job because the restaurant is open for takeout. As far as getting through this COVID-19 virus, I think that we will come out of it just fine. I kind of relate it to the flu when we were first introduced to the flu as humans. We were very um, weak, but we eventually found ways to prevent it and make people better. So I think that's what's going to happen with this new virus. It's just going to, you know, maybe extend into the future a little bit. We have to know our way around it, but it will get better. And I truly believe that for everybody. A sense of optimism and resilience. Is that unusual from what you're hearing?
4: No, not at all. I think uh, there is still a lot of optimism and, and resilience and hope out there. I think sharing your story is really an act of kindness. Uh, but it's also a, a, a act of faith in the future that we believe we are going to get through this. And we believe that the lessons we learn here are going to be valuable.
0: Jason, thanks so much for sharing the stories Coloradans are sharing with you.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Avery. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Jason Hansen is the Chief Creative Officer and the Director of Interpretation and Research at History Colorado. As we said, there are many ways that you can participate in this History As It Happens program. You can find all that information at historycolorado.org COVID-19. Again, that's historycolorado.org COVID-19. As many as nineteen people have died at one nursing care facility related to the coronavirus outbreak. Fourteen of those cases are confirmed. The other five are awaiting test results or others confirmation. The Centennial Healthcare Center in Greeley is the facility, but it's not alone. Dozens of elder care facilities in the state have outbreaks of COVID nineteen. Reporter Lindsay Fent has been investigating this for CPR News. She joins me in my phone. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Before we get into your latest findings, I want to look at the big picture. Thinking back more than a month ago, a string of deaths at a nursing facility in Seattle essentially put the coronavirus on the map in the United States. So officials here had some warning about the vulnerability of these places. What protections did they put in place for elder care facilities, and how early were these actions taken? So Governor
5: Polis announced restrictions uh, and restrictions on both visitation and communal activities on March 12th. Uh, this was a day before the federal government took those same actions, but it was a week after the first confirmed COVID-19 case in Colorado, and the reason they didn't immediately institute restrictions uh, was because socialization is so important for the well-being of people in nursing homes, uh, and that made it very easy for the disease to spread. Uh, Randy Kuykendall, the director of health facilities, explained that in an interview with me.
2: Healthcare facilities, by their very nature, are designed around communal living, these are their homes. And so as in your own home, you know, when one person gets a cold, it's pretty difficult sometimes to keep uh, the other people in the house falling ill as well.
5: And so there were also orders for the health department to begin inspecting facilities with, in, with known infection control issues. Um, but the lack of personal protective equipment in the department uh, made them have to wait about 10 days to really ramp that up.
0: Now, what portion of the deaths in Colorado related to COVID-19 are from people in nursing homes?
5: Uh, it's about a third, and, but it's very important to remember that when you look at these high numbers, that people in nursing homes, so the elderly and people with underlying health conditions, they're the people who are most susceptible to developing a serious case of the disease. So once COVID-19 gets into a nursing home, it quickly becomes very deadly. Uh, Still, as of my count last Friday, uh, 81 of the 250 confirmed or suspected deaths in the state at that time had taken place in a nursing home, and at least 59 facilities had outbreaks. Uh, So that information has been pretty hard to come by, uh, and it's constantly changing. I had to call all the county health departments across the state and some specific facilities themselves in order to get that information. Uh, So about five days later, the number is probably higher.
0: That's going to change, right, about how available how available that information is?
5: Yeah, so on Saturday, the state announced that it's going to start putting out weekly reports on infections and deaths in elder care facilities. Uh, the first one is supposed to come out tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, though we do have no idea what format that information is going to be in.
0: And there is the one facility I mentioned at the beginning. You found that as many as 19 people in that facility's care have died?
5: Yeah, so that facility is in Greeley. It's Centennial Healthcare Center, and it's been hit particularly hard. Uh, As of Friday, they had 14 confirmed deaths and five deaths that were suspected from COVID-19. Spokespeople for the facility have said that they're isolating residents and working to keep enough personal protective equipment for staff, but they haven't given that many details.
0: Do you have any sense of why the numbers are so high there? Uh, It's been tough
5: to get information on how these outbreaks are getting started in each facility, Uh, but Centennial did receive a complaint in February, uh, weeks before the COVID-19 outbreak that was related to infection control. Um, It had to do with an employee who failed to sanitize equipment, properly wash her hands, and change her gloves. Uh, This type of infection control complaint uh, is the same type of thing, the same type of protocol that would be used to stop the spread of something like COVID-19. But it's important to note that infection control complaints are pretty common here in Colorado and all over the country. So as of Friday of the 59 facilities in the state with outbreaks, nearly half have received similar complaints in the last three years. Uh, According to Glenn Mays, a professor at the Colorado School of Public Health, that's something the whole country has long struggled with.
2: We see that there are persistent problems with nursing homes complying with existing infection control practices that are required by the federal government, by CMS as a, you know, as a requirement for being able to receive Medicare and Medicaid payments. We know that this has been a vulnerability in nursing homes for a long time and it's, it's something that we fail to address.
0: Can we even be sure that those numbers you cited are complete? We know that there are issues with testing and not enough people are getting tested. So how do we know that the numbers are accurate?
5: Well, that's the best information that we've been able to get. And there's more information that keeps coming out. So on Saturday, the state announced that a facility in Aurora had eight people die in recent weeks, all likely connected to COVID-19. That facility is called Juniper Village. And we hadn't even come across that facility uh, as having COVID-19 deaths or an outbreak uh, once we started collecting this information. Um, But after the facility got test results for some early cases, they decided to test everybody, including the staff. And they found that more than 70 percent of the residents tested uh, positive and more than half the staff tested positive.
0: That's incredible. What are the chances that Colorado would would close one of these nursing homes or more than one of these nursing homes to slow down the spread and protect the residents who still live there? Uh,
5: So I can't really speak to the likelihood of that at this point, but I will say that it's very rare for a nursing facility to close in Colorado for deficiencies. Uh, In more than 10 years, only one nursing home in Colorado has closed after repeated infractions. So generally, the state works to bring the facility back into compliance after a violation rather than
6: shutting it down.
0: Lindsay, is there a place that families can find information about the facilities that their loved ones are in? Right now, not really.
5: Uh, The list I was able to compile is in my story on CPR.org, but those numbers are constantly changing. Uh, The state will start releasing their list tomorrow at covid19.colorado.gov, but we don't know what that list will look like. Uh, And also, I'm interested in hearing from people whose families or loved ones have been affected by outbreaks in nursing homes. If you have any information you'd like to share, please email us at uh, news at CPR.org. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you.
0: Reporter Lindsay Fent has been covering nursing homes during this coronavirus outbreak for CPR News. Up next, how the pandemic is affecting the state's budget plans. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Uncertainty is all around right now, but you can be certain that CPR News has what you need in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic or any time. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Keep up with the latest on the public health situation, the unemployment crisis, and stories that have nothing to do with the pandemic that will help us all remember the wider world out there. Tune in for news and analysis on the radio and sign up for the Lookout newsletter at CPR.org. Thank you for tuning in to CPR News. As people try to get by day to day during the pandemic, state lawmakers have one eye on what's to come budget cuts. That's just one of the discussion points in the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry joins Purplish hosts and public affairs reporters Andrew Kinney and Benta Berkland.
7: I think we're in week three of recording Purplish remotely from our separate homes, not in the studio booth. (laughs) I
3: miss the studio booth.
7: (laughs) How is the work-life balance going for both of you?
6: Well, um, you know, personally, I have two tiny children under the age of five in the house all the time, so there's that. But um, also, I think just professionally, I really miss getting in people's faces with my mic um, in person (laughs) and making them talk to me. Now I'm doing that on Zoom, but I am seeing a lot of kitchens and uh, sheriff's deputies' offices and... (laughs) That's kind of our new reality. But I look forward to the day that we get to go back and talk to people in person. Definitely harder to track people down. Although everybody is home, right? So or most people are home. So you can, you know, right. if you can't get them, they're just they're purposely avoiding you.
3: <laughs> yeah, they have no excuse. They, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I definitely miss being in the Capitol and, and the just kind of spontaneous things that happen in, out in the real world. But I like being able to go into my backyard and dig things up when I get overwhelmed with reporting. And yes, I've been hearing a lot of people's children and and seeing a lot of their houses, too.
7: Well, for this episode, we are going to check in on the COVID-19 pandemic that's still dominating pretty much everything. Yep. And in our line of work, we're talking state government, the state legislature, the justice system. And we'll talk about some key dates and actions coming up and a lot of other things that we're trying to keep track of. A lot of people are looking at the 2020 Joint Budget Committee schedule. That's important because lawmakers still need to pass a budget to keep the government running. The fiscal year starts July 1st, and we're bracing for some pretty significant budget cuts.
3: Yeah, and they're even cutting for this year already. Uh, Governor Polis' budget chief sent out a letter to the state departments, told them to consider delaying grants, delay making hires, even maybe, if possible, delay implementing some of the new laws that uh, state legislators passed in the last couple of years. And overall, it asks them to find ways to return, you know, $43 million to the budget and all at the end of this fiscal year.
6: And in in my little beat world, um, criminal justice, you know, that will absolutely affect the Department of Corrections, the Department Mm. of Public Safety, which um, tracks data on crimes across the state for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and all of that. You know, I also think, interestingly, um, as a side note, I've been talking to a lot of cops and sheriffs in the last few weeks, and they're also really Mm -hmm. worried about budget cuts at the county level and at the city level because tax revenues are going to be way down everywhere. You know, you think about small, small little sheriff's departments, like San Miguel County, which we're going to talk about later in this episode, they've completely put a fence up around Telluride. Nobody can come in, nobody can go out, no tourists can come stay there. What does that do to Mm -hmm. the San Miguel County sheriff?
3: The other document that people are looking at on the website is the state economic forecast. Not surprisingly, that's kind of the document that, gosh, these nonpartisan economists come up with to try to predict how much money the state's going to have to spend in the next year. and. It's a, it's not a pretty picture right now, and it's liable to get worse, so people are watching that closely to see what's going to happen uh, to their own little corner of the world.
7: Governor Jared Polis has extended Colorado's stay-at-home order until April 26th. That could definitely get pushed back again, but he says if people stay at home, he thinks that date is achievable.
3: That's something he's mentioned in a couple of recent press conferences. This idea of a return or the beginning of a return to normalcy, if we all behave properly. But what we don't know yet is what that actually looks like. Um, What gets opened potentially on April 27th? Or what are we allowed to do on April 27th that we can't do right now?
7: And some lawmakers have had questions for the governor. The House Republican Caucus, all 24 of them, sent a letter asking for details about how polis will decide when the state can reopen and Will he look at infection
6: rates or hospitalization rates? And I've been super fascinated by, um, in the criminal justice system, this notion of a speedy trial and how coronavirus has upended some of that. A week or so ago, I was talking to the Adams County District Attorney, Dave Young, and he was telling me that once you are arraigned, the clock starts and you are guaranteed a trial six months from that date. So when they have closed courts and they've pushed most proceedings back a little bit because of coronavirus, I'm curious. I think he was really worried about what that's going to do and how the appellate courts are going to handle that. If someone says, hey, I didn't get my speedy trial within six months, this whole thing should be tossed out. And so I'm kind of trying to track that because as this goes on, you know, and if it even goes on beyond April 26th, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that affects, you know, criminal justice system across the state. It means this is going to happen everywhere.
7: Another issue we've heard Polis mention a lot, testing and monitoring of, of people who've contracted COVID-19. He wants more of it. He says testing's actually gone up about tenfold since early March, but he doesn't think it's enough.
2: Testing itself doesn't cure anybody. How do you support the isolation and quarantine of the specific individuals who test positive and those who have been exposed to them rather than the mass quarantining of society, which is what is so economically devastating to all of us as well as just devastating to our morale.
6: South Korea, I know, had some rules where they were testing everybody, and I think in China too, they were testing people before they even Mm -hmm. went back to their own apartments. The point is you know, trying to find some sense of where people are sick is a good way of identifying Clusters and then that kind of frees up other people to go on with their lives.
3: You've been following along though with one of the more uh, more comprehensive or, or even invasive, some would say, testing efforts here in Colorado, and that's in San Miguel County, right?
6: It is, and, and I would I would definitely take take issue with the word invasive because it's all voluntary, so like they're not requiring anyone to get tested or anything. But it is very interesting because it's the first place in the country to test everybody you know, everybody who wants to, that is, um, healthy or not, to see if Mm. we could figure out how widespread COVID-19 is. And it's a little bit of an interesting backstory. There are these two CEOs married to each other of this very prominent biomedical company, pharmaceutical company. Mm. These two CEOs live and have a residence in Telluride. So they have a sort of a soft spot for Mm. San Miguel County. (laughs) Um, they have decided to just let everybody who wants to get a test. And and as of April 8th, they have tested 6,000 of the 8,200 residents in San Miguel wow. County. Um, it's a huge number, really. I, I'm personally surprised at how many people came out voluntarily to schools and firehouses and churches to get tested. Mm. Now, one thing I want to note that's very interesting about this is this is not the swab test the CDC is doing across the country. This is a blood serum test. The difference so is... they're not
3: sticking the thing up your nose.
6: No. No. And the difference between blood and they and a scientist would say blood never lies, right, is that Hmm. you get a blood test and the antibodies for COVID-19 show up, even if you had COVID-19 three months ago and you're healthy and everything's great, the antibodies would show up if you had it. So they're Hmm. testing all these people to see if they had it and maybe didn't know it and are now going on with their lives. Um, or they might be at the very beginning stages of getting it and it would show up on the blood test and they'd feel fine. Those people are able to then go self-isolate in their own home because they might be coming mm. down with it. So the first tranche was like a thousand tests and they had, I think, 28 uh, borderline positives and um, mm. I think eight or nine definite positives. Anyway, it's a little higher number than we think. And I think that shows oh. that covid Is as we have said and as Governor Polis has said repeatedly, way more widespread than we know because the testing has been so delayed and so spotty.
3: What exactly is the goal, though? Like, do they want to just find people who are infected and isolate them or they got something bigger in mind here?
6: Well, you know, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of goals. One is yes, if you find out that you have the positive antibodies before you're sick, that could definitely um, protect other people in your family and your household. You go sleep in the basement, and you know, other people in your house could maybe be spared of this. Um, it could show a little bit more of an accurate deadly rate. I mean, not to be grim, but if so many more people hmm. have it than we know, we might see that the death rate of this is way lower than we think, right? So I think that's another thing. It just gives everybody a little bit more data. Colorado just
7: had the first confirmed COVID-19 case in the correction system.
6: And we've also seen some outbreaks in jails. We have. There have been positives in the Denver jail, the El Paso jail, the Weld County jail. And I think that that is a real undercount. I don't think there's a lot of widespread testing in jails, and I'm hearing that there are a lot of people who are sick.
3: We got news last week as well that an El Paso County deputy had died at age 41. At the time, that was the youngest coronavirus fatality in the state. This deputy worked in intake and release, and that, again, emphasizes the risk to everyone in the correctional system.
6: Yeah, I think a lot of people, like sheriffs and sheriff's deputies really followed that El Paso case, it was horrifying. Um, And they've Mm. since, the El Paso deputies, I think they've had eight positives in there, and they're getting it from the jail, likely, because jails have such churn, and because Mm. there are so many people coming in and out who work there as well. Uh, You know, there's just a real chance for, you know, jails to become breeding grounds. You know, I don't know how many of the deputies are wearing masks. You know, they can give it to each other. And I think that's where it's hard. And Allison, I imagine
7: like some workplaces, it's hard to keep that social distancing measures in place where you're not going to be standing right next to other people.
6: Well, right. I mean, if you think about what a jail is, it's like the absolute opposite of social distancing. Most of these jails are at, you know. 70, 80, 90, or 100% capacity. They have bunk beds. They're all sharing toilets. They all share sinks. A lot of times there's not liquid soap. There's a bar of soap that they're all sharing. Wow. And so you, you have to think that that's not at all the point of jail. And so it's really hard to go and like try to make a jail a place where everybody can stay six feet apart. Now, I've done a lot of reporting and there are a lot of sheriffs really working hard to do that because they're so freaked out. I mean, they're freaked out about big outbreaks. They're also freaked out about their own deputies. Um, understandably. So yeah. jails are just, you know, ripe for this. And there have been some Colorado sheriffs letting people out of jail um, to try to reduce those numbers so it's a little bit less dangerous.
7: So Colorado's legislative session is still paused, but we do have a tentative date for when lawmakers will come back to the Capitol. And that's set for May 18th. Yeah, it could definitely change, but the goal is to get the governor a budget by May 30th, and that's because the budget needs to be done by July 1st to start paying the state's bills in the new Mm -hmm. year. I think a lot of the major legislation, some of the big priorities for Democrats who are in charge of the legislature, are going to be set aside to focus on coronavirus.
3: Yeah, I've been making some calls on that, Benta, and uh, one of the first things I hear is like we still want to wait for the rest of the budget picture to become clear. But what's becoming clear is that the budget's not going to get any better. So these democratic leaders and lawmakers are having discussions among themselves about what do we have a realistic shot of getting done? You know, not just with the limited money, but also with the um perceptions of like it's really hard to institute a big new public program when government's strapped for cash and business is struggling. and, You know, we'll have to see how receptive folks are
6: yeah. And, and, you know, there are some criminal justice measures I was tracking before COVID, doing more restrictions on cash bail. There was some legislation on sex offenders and juvenile sex mm. offenders. But, you know, I think some of that, I just have no idea what the new world's going to look like when they go back. I think the criminal justice system has kind of changed. I mean, there are people out on parole with technical violations that are not being sent back to prison right now because they're trying to not introduce new people into prisons unless they absolutely have to. So, I think in some ways this has been a massive criminal justice reform effort, the quarantine and the coronavirus and policy changes and sheriffs letting people out of jail. I mean, all of this stuff. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the legislature tackles some of these sort of old bills when there's this new world, you know.
3: The two ones I've got my eyes on are the public option, which was set to be this big health care fight where the governor was really running hard against hospitals saying that they need to give up some of their profits. Even one of the sponsors, Rep Dylan Roberts, he acknowledged that that's going to be a really heavy lift.
4: I think a public health crisis makes clear that we need to have a system in place that gets people access to health care as much as possible and as affordable as possible. And that was always the goal of the Colorado option. So we'll keep working on it. It may happen this year. It may not. But it will still be something that we need to move forward with.
3: And then on paid leave, you know, that's the bill that aims to give people paid time off from work to do stuff like take care of a loved one, take care of themselves, uh, have a baby. Sponsors are still working on that one. They think that they still have a shot. They're going to have a plan ready to go May 18th, and it may be a lot different than what we've heard about in the past. What's funny on both of those issues is that you know, for for a lot of advocates. This crisis has highlighted the need for a more durable health insurance plan and the need for people to be able to take time off work when they're sick, which some people haven't been doing because they need the money.
7: We do have about half of the legislative session still left, but I don't think it's clear if they'll use all those remaining days because as we approach the summer, we're getting closer to a November election. So there's political considerations, too.
3: Yeah, that's what's kind of ironic or strange about this whole situation is it has highlighted, you know, new arguments for all these changes, while also limiting the government's ability to to do much about it. Um, you know, they, they talk about black swan events in the financial markets, like things you can't predict that change everything. And this is very much a black swan for, uh, for the legislature as well.
7: This is our final segment for this week's episode of Purplish, where we reflect on something that stood out to us over our reporting recently. Anything that on, on either of your radars?
3: Well, the thing that pops to mind is, you know, we mentioned how we're, we're getting glimpses into people's home lives. I was talking to Representative Jonathan Singer about something this week, and, uh, you know, his kids were, were in the background. And he was obviously doing a great job of, like, juggling the two different needs, but we, we, he he didn't, <laughs> this this really cracked me up, Like he didn't um, really change his tone of voice between talking to me and talking to them or even put a pause in there. So he would be in the middle of an answer saying like, and the thing that my colleagues and my constituents need to know is that daddy can't make you a sandwich right now. <laughs> and so you would just end up with these kind of really funny incongruous <laughs> statements that combine public policy and caring for a small child.
6: I have a small little personal story that um, is kind of it sort of exemplifies it just depends on what perspective you're looking at something in this weird world and, and, and how you're going to observe it is I was on a bike ride with my uh, almost four year old and um, mm. and I'm looking at all of these playgrounds around our neighborhood that have orange tape around them because the city has taped off playgrounds mm. so because they're, we're not supposed to be going to playgrounds and I think they all look like creepy crime scenes like it looks like there's a playground Crime scene. Every single time I bike by one or see one, that's I, the
3: crime reporter in you. Yeah,
6: that's my yeah, crime that's reporter. A disturbing I'm like, image. oh, this looks like something bad happened there, but it's just taped off. But my daughter is like, mom, the playgrounds are trapped. They're all trapped. <laughs> and is that because of the Koravirus? Is that the Koravirus and the, that they trapped all the playgrounds? <laughs> so it just Aww. depends on the perspective that you're you know you're looking at. You're, you're looking at this entire thing, and sometimes it's good to have a, a child nearby to give you something that's, you know, a little less grisly.
0: <laughs> CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry, joining public affairs reporters Benda Berkland and Andrew Kinney for the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can hear this and other episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. Again, play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.